0: Welcome to the FT Election Countdown, your regular update on the UK's election, which has now happened from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's commanding victory. The Conservative Party is back in power with its best results since the days of Margaret Thatcher. We'll be dissecting all the results, how the Conservatives smashed Labour's red wall of seats in the North and Midlands, what his government might do next, and what it means for Brexit. Plus, we'll be looking at Labour. The disappointing night for Jeremy Corbyn, his impending departure as leader. Plus, bad night for the Liberal Democrat, but a good night for the Scottish National Party. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Deputy Penny Editor, Miranda Green, columnist, Robert Shrimsley, Whitehall Editor, James Blitz, Chief Political Correspondent, Jim Picard, and Political Correspondent, Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of the FT Election Countdown, then do subscribe for all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And yes, please leave us a nice review. So, as you'll all know, the result of the general election was a resounding victory for Boris Johnson. When the exit poll landed at 10pm on Thursday night, there was an intake of breath in Conservative HQ, Downing Street, and yes, the FT newsroom as it put Boris Johnson on course for a big majority, much bigger than anybody thought, and it's proven that his strategy of targeting those Labour seats in the North and Midlands has paid off, and for the other parties, it's a huge disappointment. The British electoral landscape has been re- drawn overnight, with new voting coalitions emerging and new problems for the parties that lost. So George Parker, let's begin when that exit poll landed. Boris Johnson had a Bit of a tricky campaign going into polling day and everybody I spoke to in Conservative HQ in Downing Street really was on the edge of the seats. They were talking that even a victory of one is still a majority they were putting out. But then suddenly this exit poll came out and predicted a majority of 86, which is a little bit off from the final result, but still showed that Boris Johnson made this big gamble and it really did pay off.
1: Well, it's a massive personal victory for Boris Johnson and also, it has to be said, a massive personal victory for his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, who's been advising this strategy all the way along. And you're right, there were nerves up until the last minutes, and the last minute YouGov MRP poll suggested the majority could be as low as 28. But in the end, the result really matched what I think we all thought during the course of the campaign was the mood of the country. The fact is, get Brexit done wasn't just a political slogan. It was what people were telling people on the doorstep time after time and time. And set against the fact that Boris Johnson was facing the most hapless and hopeless opposition leader of all time. So in the end, we shouldn't have been surprised. But I guess because of our woeful record of predicting election and referendum results in recent times, we were all aiming off. But in the end, he was vindicated and probably on his account, a well-deserved victory.
0: Indeed, Miranda Green, because this is the biggest conservative majority since 1987. This is really something the Tories wanted. They didn't get it under John Major. They didn't get it under any of their leaders, including David Cameron at all. A lot of it was thanks to Jeremy Corbyn. And as we've talked about in this podcast, you know, I've been out and about in a lot. And the overwhelming feeling you got, particularly outside of London, is that Mr Corbyn is just unbelievably unpopular. And essentially what happened was the UK decided it didn't want him as prime minister. And once that decision was made... All these seats fell, marginal seats, but also seats, some of which have never had Conservative MPs before. And I think if we were to look back on what we underestimated, it was the sheer unpopularity of the Labour leader.
2: Well, it's really a historic election for the reasons you've mentioned, which is it's redrawing the political map of the UK. So you've had the SNP doing very well in Scotland, which is delivering a problem for the Prime Minister. But within England and also in quite a lot of Wales, it's now Tory territory. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how this affects a lot of things. You know, if they bring in boundary changes, of course, that will make it easier for them to hang on to a lot of seats. But also, if they can manage to adapt their policy programme and secure the sort of Brexit that helps those new areas, or at least doesn't damage them, then we could be looking at the Tories even keeping these parts of territory. So it's really kind of a transformative result in that way. And also, as you've said, just an unbelievably disciplined campaign from Number 10, Three words only allowed to be spoken for a matter of weeks get Brexit done. But I do think there was another slogan which helped them, which was the Corbynites telling everybody else, well, F off and join the Tories then if you had dared to utter a tiny sliver of criticism of the Corbyn regime.
0: And that's what people ultimately did do, it seems. Now, Robert, the result that symbolised the night was actually a very early one, which was Blythe Valley in Northumberland, a former mining community, the sort of place that we thought the Tories might take, the so-called Red Wall of Labour seats, which are those places that economically and demographically suit the mode of Conservative seats, but always vote Labour because they've hated the Tories for many decades. And that came through very early on and nobody thought that seat would go, and it did. And that really symbolised... A lot of the patterns we saw throughout the night in seats like Workington, Clwyd South, the Vale of Clwyd in North Wales, West Bromwich East, West Bromwich West, the list just goes on.
3: Yeah, I think after the exit poll, Blythe Valley was the result that showed the exit poll was roughly on the money. And it did absolutely symbolise what's happened in this election. Forgive my croakiness, by the way, which is that the Conservative Party moved into this territory. It didn't, by the way, just move into the Leave seats, it picked up working class votes across. The country and across the north, and it has redrawn the political map of Britain. And it may be that Brexit was the wedge or the lever that helped them do this, but there was something else going on here, which is I think that, as George and Miranda both alluded, a lot of the Labour Party's approach towards people who are poor or less well-off, has been, you poor people, don't you worry, we're going to look after you, take these free things, we know you can't cope without the government. And that actually isn't a message that a lot of people want to hear. They want to hear how a government is going to help them get up and get forward. And the Conservative message was also aspirational. It spoke to their concerns about public services. It spoke to their demand to be respected on Brexit. One of the things I heard when I was out was people saying, People have disrespected my vote on leave. They have to respect what I did. Not only do they think we're rubbish, but they're disrespecting my vote. And Boris Johnson answered all those points while Jeremy Corbyn ignored them all.
0: It's something that was often laughed at in the Labour Party, George, but the word aspiration does come to mind here. This was what Ed Miliband was criticised for back in 2015 for not providing a manifesto that would give voters a ladder to climb up towards a better life, whereas Robert was saying Labour was offering lots of state spending. But it seemed out there the only thing that really connected with people was get Brexit done. And when we look at the electorate, the Conservatives succeeded in a big way of taking up Nearly all of the Leave vote, and it hadn't been for the Brexit party, there would have been even more gains as well. Seats like a Vet Cooper's seat in Yorkshire, they would have flipped as well. But when it comes actually down to it, it was a bet that the British electorate is going to go down Remain Leave lines, the Conservatives hoovered up the Leave vote and the Remain vote was split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats and of course other parties in different parts of the UK.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Robert mentioned the fact that Brexit was a wedge that got the Conservatives in there, but it allowed them to speak directly to voters who previously weren't giving a hearing to the Conservative Party. And it wasn't just that Boris Johnson was speaking to the aspiration of the people who ended up switching from Labour to Conservative, the personal aspiration, but he was also talking about an aspiration for the country. Boris Johnson was able to exude an optimism, a confidence about the future for the country in a way which Jeremy Corbyn signally failed to do. When Jeremy Corbyn speaks about a country which is a country of billionaires and food banks... That's not a picture of the country that most people either recognise or want to hear about their own country, actually. And so Boris Johnson was speaking a language which spoke directly to those people. He captured the patriotism and he just captured a sort of can-do spirit, which I think people have been looking for in politicians ever since the Brexit referendum, frankly.
2: Also, he pulled off a couple of really clever psychological (laughs) tricks, which possibly were not the most honest way to describe the situation the country finds itself in, but nevertheless were very, very clever, one of which was to pretend that he, the leader of the Leave campaign, had not foisted Brexit onto us. It was something that he just had to deal with for us. And also he pulled off this trick of offering something fresh and new, even though the Conservatives have actually been in power for nearly a decade and he's been in the Cabinet for considerable periods of that time. So he reminded people constantly... I've only been Prime Minister for however many days and that way he was able to promise some sort of fresh start.
3: Mm. And I do think one other factor which went the opposite way to the way Labour I think expected, which is the fact that Everybody said Labour couldn't win outright and it was only about whether the Tories had a big majority. A lot of Labour people thought that just like in 2017, that would play to their advantage, that people could indulge themselves with a vote against the Conservatives or a vote for Labour, who they didn't necessarily love, to deny the Conservatives a majority. I think this time around it played the opposite way, which is that actually voters said, we're sick of the gridlock, we don't want another hung parliament, we actually want a majority government and there appears to be only one on offer.
0: And I think actually the Get Brexit Done slogan to a lot of voters was actually just get politics out of my life because the stories that I picked up on the doorstep were people just sick of hearing it on their dinner tables, their breakfast tables, the six o'clock news. They just wanted to get on with their lives. And that slogan Dominic Cummings came up with six months ago, people versus parliament. It was people versus a broken parliament. And throughout the whole campaign, they had that slogan there. Now, there's a lot of people who are trying to get credit for this campaign, Dominic Cummings, as you mentioned, George is one of them. Isaac Levido, the Australian who ran the campaign, is another. The two Kiwi chaps who ran the digital campaign for toys are others. But there's one person I think who won't get credit, who should, and that is Theresa May. Because the whole strategy Boris Johnson has run in this campaign is exactly the same one Mrs May ran in 2017. It was targeting leave voting seats outside of London. Mm. It was a getting a mandate for Brexit. It was a more left-wing economic agenda and trying to tackle those things like immigration system like social care, for example. What Boris Johnson did was took the template of 2017, mm. distilled it, made it better and disciplined and got it through.
1: Yep, I think that's quite a good analysis of it. You mentioned Isaac Levido, the Australian campaign manager. I think one of the really important early strategic decisions he was important in was framing this election as a choice between Tory economic competence versus labour profligacy and incredible spending commitments. And I think the way they framed that as a serious Tory fiscal message actually was an important internal battle that the Treasury won. As far as Theresa May's strategy is concerned, yes, I agree that he was adapting her northern strategy, but I think her northern strategy was a bit too clever by half. There was a whole load of stuff about corporate governance and workers on boards and stuff which didn't really resonate particularly with voters in the north. Less about massive public spending, which, of course, is what Boris Johnson is offering in terms of infrastructure and hospitals and schools and all the rest of it. The other thing about Theresa May's strategy and the reason it didn't work in 2017 is that the last election wasn't actually an election about Brexit, paradoxically. This one was, and actually this, as Robert put it earlier, gave
3: Boris Johnson the wedge to get a hearing on the other stuff. I was just reflecting on that song title about it being a long, long way from May to December. But I think the point about this is that Theresa May identified an issue and a direction for the Conservatives, which was away from a Cameron Osborne attempt to ally essentially shire Tories with wealthy metropolitan social liberals. That was the Conservative strategy under Cameron Osborne. Under Theresa May and now successfully under Boris Johnson, it has been to ally shire Tories with blue-collar, Patriotic workers, that is fundamentally different. Patriotic working class, blue-collar workers, aspirational. Those are the people that the last two leaders of the Conservative Party have sought to bring into the tent, and this time they've succeeded
0: now, Miranda, there's two things about the future I want to pick up on we'll unpack this in many podcasts to come. But first of all is how the Conservative Party is going to need to change. And one of the things I've been struck by is ever since Boris Johnson declared victory on this, both at his rally very early on Friday morning in London, but also in his speech to Conservative HQ which the FT got its hands on, is he was saying, this is a seismic change and we have to acknowledge as the Conservative Party the scale of that change. Now, obviously he's trying to be humble there despite the fact he's won this stonking majority but the fact is he does realise that these are not natural Tory voters and in places I've been to like Darlington and Bishop Auckland it is a sense they've lent their votes to the Tory to say okay we're going to try you out for change let's see how you do now the question for the future is how do you hold on to those people while also hold on to those Shire Tories that Robert was talking about
2: Absolutely well this morning he thanked people for lending him their votes which I thought was very very significant it was the right thing to say because it has a sort of degree of humility Humility about it. And it also acknowledges that the Tory party now has to deliver for those Mm. people. If we have actually moved away from the last few years of constant turmoil and constant electoral events, as they call it, democratic events, then he will actually have a few years to change those people's lives. So it's going to be very interesting, the kind of policy programme through which the Tory party can show that they are not going to do what they accuse the Labour Party of having done, which is to take those voters for granted and not deliver improvements to them.
0: At about 4am this morning, George, having a classic FT debate, we were going backwards and forwards, about the term One Nation Mm. and where this came from and how it's been used and abused by different Tory leaders throughout the age. And Boris Johnson loves to say this One Nation Conservative government. And when a lot of people see that, they think of David Cameron's socially liberal, Mm. warm and cuddly-ish Tory government. That's probably not the sort of One Nation government Boris Johnson has in mind.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think you have to unstitch what One Nation... Johnson conservatism is all about. So on the one hand, it is very much about making sure those people who lent the Tories their vote this time will vote Tory next time. And that means heavy investment in public services, in infrastructure. And if there's any money around for tax cuts, you aim it at the people on the lower side of the income scale rather than the higher side, which we saw in the manifesto. At the same time, it's not the kind of cuddly, liberal, Ken Clarkey open internationalist kind of one-nation tourism with which the terms become associated because a lot of those people and those constituents are socially conservative and have concerns, for example, about immigration. But I think the other point about one-nation is, and Boris Johnson's speech on the morning of the election, was he said that we have to change. That's an unusual thing for the winner of an election to say, we have to change. What does it actually mean in practice? Well, one-nation conservatism for him also involves holding the United Kingdom together We may come on to this later point, but there'll be a lot of comment about this. How do you frame a Brexit policy which doesn't exacerbate the tensions in the union? I think Boris Johnson's Brexit strategy will be significantly diluted in part as a reflection of the new electoral landscape.
3: When one looks back to the origins of the phrase one nation, it goes back to Disraeli. and he, Although he doesn't use the phrase one nation, he talks about the two nations, the rich and the poor, and how you bring them together. And that, in a sense, is the approach that Boris Johnson is going to be trying to take. How do I unify the comfortable and the uncomfortable? And I think this is one of the interesting challenges for the Conservative Party. And the test of how deep this really goes in their cultural leadership is that, Essentially for decades, the Conservative Party has been the party of the complacent, the people who are comfortable and happy. And now it is simultaneously the party of the complacent and the disgruntled. And it somehow has to marry those two things. And the question is going to be whether Boris Johnson and his team have the discipline not to lapse back into the easy complacency, which is the field from where many of them come, but to stay continually focused on satisfying those people who have, as Miranda put it, lent them their vote.
0: And again, I'm sorry to reflect back to Theresa May, but the phrase burning injustices does come to mind once again. Finally, Miranda, let's talk about Brexit, because the overwhelming conclusion of this whole election is we are leaving the EU. The fact that Boris Johnson has a clear majority for his approach to Brexit means that he will now ram the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons before Christmas. We then assume it will get signed sign-off from the European Parliament in January, and the UK will leave the EU on January the 31st. And that means the second referendum the people's vote, that is now dead. But then it also brings on to the question of how do you take this thing forward and get a trade deal by the end of next year? And there are still some very tricky questions on that.
2: Well, absolutely. And for the electorate to deliver this scale of majority on such a unspelled out programme, particularly on this most important and difficult task ahead of the government is quite something. But we do at least have certainty about the next stage of what's happening. And then, as George has said, in terms of the next stage, you know, what is our ultimate destination and what kind of terms do we set as a relationship with the EU? It's impossible not to think that the fact that the Tory party now represents these other areas, which are manufacturing areas where export industries are important. Again, it speaks to what Robert was saying. You're representing a different class of people with different concerns and different worries about the effects of Brexit. And that could start to really affect the objectives of the eventual trade deals struck with the EU and with other countries.
0: And I've met quite a few of these on the campaign trail, George, and one thing that strikes me, a lot of the new Conservative MPs are from seats that still have decent manufacturing bases, Mm. places that depend on supply change and those kind of blue collar workers that the Tories have now won over. They're going to be much more interested in having a tight alignment deal with the EU on goods particularly, because, of course, Boris Johnson just a couple of weeks ago was talking about tearing up state aid rules and having the ability to move away from the level playing field with the EU. But that means a longer, and more complicated Brexit deal. If he wants to get a quick deal done that keeps those seats happy, then all he has to do is say, OK, we'll be in lockstep with the EU and we'll have some new freedoms on services, but on goods, essentially we're going to be a rule taker, not a rule maker.
1: Yes, I think the result of this election will give Boris Johnson the pretext he needs to strike a much closer kind of trade deal with the EU And also, incidentally, one that will take a lot longer to negotiate than he's hitherto suggested would be possible. So just this morning in the immediate aftermath of the election, I've spoken to a couple of ministers who've said, well, you know, December 2020 is the objective, but events can get in the way. And also reflecting directly on the fact that we've got to do a trade deal, which not only speaks to people in manufacturing seats, including a number of new Conservative MPs, but also allays concerns in Scotland that we're going down a hard Brexit route. So you can see how Boris Johnson is going to use the result of this election, the changed map to actually go for a more economically sensible Brexit.
3: And I think this is even more the case in dealing with the nationalist challenge in Scotland where you know the SNP had a terrific night. They got 45% of the vote. They articulated the remain cause very effectively in Scotland and really mopped up and The nationalist surge is back on the agenda. The second independence referendum is a serious possibility. And if Boris Johnson's going to head that off, it's not a foregone conclusion because the parties of the union still got more votes than the SNP. But if he's going to head that off, he's going to have to tread very carefully around Brexit when it comes to issues that will agitate Scots.
0: If it was a good night for the Conservative Party, then it was a bad one for Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Jeremy Corbyn's party did not have the breakthrough and in fact went backwards, delivering its worst election result since the Second World War and its second worst election result pretty much in the party's history. Mr Corbyn has said he is going to resign at some point in the near future, but we don't have a date yet. Meanwhile, the Liberal Democrats failed to make any progress and in fact went backwards from their last parliamentary tally and their leader, Joe Swinson, amazingly lost her seat in Scotland but the SNP did make big gains picking up a handful of seats and once again raising the question of a second Scottish independence referendum so Jim Picard let's begin with Labour here this result was cataclysmic for the party that it went backwards from where it was at the last general election. This is now the fourth general election the party has lost and generally has been seen as a repudiation of Jeremy Corbyn and his whole political project.
4: Yeah, it was an absolute catastrophe for Labour. One pro-Corbyn MP texted me last night saying, I feel sick to the pit of my stomach. Someone else called it a bloodbath. You can't hide from the raw data of coming in with barely 200 seats, worse than Michael Foote and just the sight of Boris Johnson with a a huge majority. They're not going to be able to to sort of hold him back in any conceivable way for quite a long time as as far as anyone can see at the moment. And yes, Jeremy Corbyn in the early hours of the morning stood in Islington North, looked out across the sea of his supporters and said he was not going to be the leader by the time of the next election. He, uh, I think as we're speaking, is going to sort of set out some kind of timetable, the is, I hope this isn't wrong and people get to listen to this, that he will sort of oversee the transition to the next leader and that could be in the spring, give or take a few months.
0: And when we look at what happened in that election that went wrong for Labour, obviously as we've dissected many, many times before, there was the manifesto, but there was also the personality of Mr Corbyn as well and there's going to be a very vicious fight now over the next couple of months through that leadership contest about what went wrong and what was to blame. And people who are supportive of Mr Corbyn saying it was absolutely nothing to do with him personally, and it was all to do with Brexit. Whereas other people, which would reflect what I heard on the doorstep, and I'm sure you have too, was that it was about him personality and the policies he stood for, not just Brexit.
4: Yeah. So to try and do this vaguely scientifically, I had a look at a kind of Delta poll from a few weeks ago this morning, which looked at hundreds and hundreds of former Labour supporters from 2017 and asked you know what their main motivation was for the fact that they were now planning probably not to vote Labour. And Corbyn came in as by far the biggest factor. That was sort of 49 out of 100. And then the next one was, I believe, their manifesto at about 20. And then Brexit was about 19. So the question with Corbyn and the really interesting bit, whether this battle for the soul of the Labour Party is going to occur is that everyone can agree that Corbyn was the problem but the battle is going to be was it because Corbyn was hard left and had these radical manifesto policies when we've seen polling suggesting that individually some of those policies were quite popular like railway nationalisation and more taxes on the rich or was it just because people thought he was kind of a shabby old geezer with a slightly sort of like it seemed like a bit of a weirdo or something you know and and that you come to totally different conclusions in terms of the next leader depending on which of those things you believe. Now, James Blitz, of course, the Labour Party
0: has been here before and a lot of parallels are being drawn to 1983 when Michael Foote, then leader, ran on a similarly left-wing manifesto and was reduced 209 seats. Their performance, which is currently 202 at the time of recording, is even worse than that. And for Labour, that's pretty grim because it took it 14 years to get back into power after that result. So based on what we're seeing now, it does look like Labour could be out for the count for a decade, quite a long
5: time. Absolutely, Seb. I mean, the comparison with Michael Foot has been made quite a lot in the last 24 hours because that was their worst performance in the post-Second World War period. It was always actually, I thought, rather unfair to Michael Foot. First of all, he was a very, very considerable figure in his own right. A deep intellectual. A deep intellectual, a, a major figure and among intellectuals in the Second World War, long-standing figure in the party. But also, okay, they had a very left-wing manifesto in 1983, but a couple of points. One, the Conservatives had only been in power for four years at that point. In this election, Labour was up against a Conservative government has been in power for nine. So it was a much, much easier target in that sense for Labour this time around. And secondly, in 1983, Margaret Thatcher had just won the Falklands victory. That absolutely turned everything for her at that point. Again, the Conservatives had nothing to show for that. So I'm just saying that because it's just a reminder of if you stand back, although there are these arguments between different factions in the Labour Party about what has gone wrong, the depth of the defeat for Labour is absolutely extraordinary against any post-war history. Historic comparison, and it is going to take at these levels a great deal of time to come back to power. It is almost inconceivable that Labour could be a majority government at the next general election, particularly because their position in Scotland is next to zero.
0: We'll come on to Scotland in a moment. And Laura Hughes, when you just look at some of the big names who have been kicked out of Parliament now, that you have Anna Turley, the MP for Redcar, who was very highly praised for trying to save the steelworks there. Emma Reynolds, who was a frontbencher under Ed Miliband, lost her seat in Wolverhampton. Sue Heyman, who represented Workington. Of course, Workington man was a big theme for the Tories. So the Labour Party this left is much smaller and they made one gain, which was Putney in South London. Apart from that, they just didn't pick up votes anywhere in this election.
6: No, and it was striking how many women for the Labour Party stepped down. Although, interesting, I was looking at the figures this morning and now over half of all Labour MPs are women, which I think is the first time that's ever happened. Same for the Liberal Democrats. The Conservatives look very different. Only a quarter of Conservative MPs in this new parliament are women. So, yeah, the really, really big names to go from the Labour Party and it's going to look very different when we return to the House of Commons.
0: Well, Jim, this brings us on to, of course, the leadership contest. Now, the last Labour leadership contest we had in 2016 was when Jeremy Corbyn was challenged by more moderate soft left figures, and it was Jeremy Corbyn versus Owen Smith, and Mr Mm. Corbyn smashed that. And our view has always been since then that the Labour membership and the Labour unions have always been very pro-Mr Corbyn. And I guess once we start to get into the weeds of this contest and we know the timetable and how it's going to pan out, it's going to be how that membership and how the unions feel about this election result. Is it? as you said about Mr Corbyn himself is it about Brexit or is it about the policies he stood for and I know it's probably far too early to say but what's your kind of sense about how the
4: conversation is going to look about who should yeah. come next so I think if the last election had been 2015 and then this was the only election since then and it was undeniably obviously a catastrophic result, there would be a huge impetus to push the party back towards the centre ground and especially if Brexit wasn't involved. But I think the problem, if you like, for the moderates or Blairites or centrists or whatever you want to call them is that because 2017 happened and we saw Labour admittedly lose, but they gained 30 seats and they got 40% of the vote then, there is a sort of test case I suppose for the most rabid Corbynistas to say well look that's better than Ed Miliband did that's better than Gordon Brown did and they can also point to two factors that we know were very live in this election which will no longer be live in a few months time one of which is Brexit because we'll be out of the EU and Jeremy Corbyn because he won't be there anymore and they will be making a very strong case that with a new leader without the kind of Corbyn baggage that he hung out with the IRA during the troubles and inverted commas friends with Hamas etc and didn't seem very patriotic someone else might do a bit better on a very similar economic platform rightly or wrongly i obviously don't have a desperately strong view on that we don't know now and we won't know for a very long time whether a lot of those voters in the red wall were lending their votes to the tories because they're desperate to get brexit done to use the phrase and they can equally easily withdraw them at the drop of a hat we just don't know whether it's going to be like Scotland, where Labour hemorrhages a load of seats and then you just can't see any way back from them. And
0: just to finish on there, I'm just going to ask each of you about some of the people you're going to be keeping an eye on for this Labour leadership contest. And the name that I just want to put forward is Lisa Nandy, who's someone who's written for the FT extensively about Labour's issues in its traditional heartlands. I'm not necessarily sure she would get the support to become leader, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if she ran and put forward some very interesting arguments about what the party needs to do. And I think there's nobody within the party who really has that understanding the other person in that sphere is Bridget Phillips and the MP for Sunderland South who's written a lot of very interesting stuff but neither of them are realistically going to be leaders so for you folks who are you going to be keeping your eye on when this contest begins Laura?
6: I mean I'm not sure she'll do it but I think Jess Phillips is worth watching because she is such a big personality and we know from the rise of Donald Trump we know how you know Boris Johnson's gone down that personality really really matters and she just will look so different to Boris Johnson that people might quite like that so I don't know if she'll get it but I wouldn't put her off you know could she be deputy maybe I think she could do quite well
5: James I think that's an interesting idea because I'm not sure at this point that Labour is looking for a candidate prime minister it's actually looking for in this first phase an interesting personality who's going to grab the public's attention and be very different in that sort of way to Boris Johnson I don't have a view on who would get it or should, the one thing I'm absolutely sure of is that Labour has to have a really deep internal examination and an honest one about what went wrong before it gets to making a choice, because otherwise nothing much is going to happen.
4: And Jim, all sorts of weird things happen when you get leadership contests. And what went wrong from the perspective of the moderates a few years ago was that you had a handful of kind of identikit traditional soft left New Labour types with Jeremy Corbyn on his own as a kind of sole voice of radicalism. So you could see a situation where Jess Phillips is up against three Corbynistas who aren't that interesting and therefore she manages to sort of get the attention. But you could equally see the opposite situation where you only have one Corbynista candidate and then you have Jess Phillips and, I don't know, Keir Starmer and Emily Thornberry and they get sort of clustered together as the soft left candidates and then the Corbynista soaks up the Corbynista vote, of which we know they're... There is still an awful lot. And don't forget that we expect Jeremy Corbyn to hang around long enough to sort of give a helping hand via the Labour machinery to help his favoured hard-left candidates get on the stump, get bigger jobs, get more airtime, and all the sort of helping hand of the bureaucracy. Now,
0: Laura, let's turn to Liberal Democrats. There's no way but saying that the election was a tragedy for the party, that they went in with 20 MPs, they've come out with far fewer MPs, but and of course, their failure to make any progress is symbolised by Jo Swinson herself. She was leader of the party for a mere six months and has now lost her seat by a mere 149 votes. And she looked absolutely heartbroken at her account in Scotland. But also the party's big figures, Chuck Munna, did not get elected. Sam Geman did not get elected. Sarah Wilson did not get elected. It was a Pretty bleak night for the party.
6: It was devastating for Liberal Democrats that I was talking to throughout the morning and today you couldn't almost have written it. The fact that Jo Swinson has gone is enormous and there is going to be some real soul searching now as to why she failed to connect with voters why they failed to connect with Remainers we've discussed on this podcast multiple times how they got it wrong but the one thing they're really saying is that Labour killed it for them. Because Jeremy Corbyn was such an extreme character people were just not prepared to risk it and vote Lib Dem because they were so scared of him and that's really the number one thing and they ran a really bad campaign and we can be very critical but actually also it was really hard for them. It was really hard for them. How would they have done it? There will be a huge discussion but there's going to be I think, a reconfiguration of what the party stands for. The new leader will probably have to be someone that wasn't part of the coalition years, but who is that? It's not obvious. They're going to have to completely redefine who they are and refine their way over the next few years.
4: It also feels to me a little bit as if we're seeing Labour sort of reconfiguring ever more into the kind of urban, educated, professional, yeah. white-collar vote, which is exactly where the Lib Dems have it's drifted over the problem. years as well. Like Neither party used to be in that zone and there is clearly a smaller pool of voters there than there are out in the shires and the boroughs and the market towns of uh, England.
0: One thing, James, that is just fascinating about this election is how Remain Britain didn't really find its voice here because when this election was called, we knew Boris Johnson would lap up all of the Brexit vote and he did. But there is a clear portion of the country that did want to remain in the EU and we all thought the Lib Dems would be the receptacle of that. But A, their revoke policy, which I think will go down as one of the single worst election policies in British electoral history because that went down consistently on the doorstep very, very badly, as we know from Laura's excellent reporting. But again, it was this issue of personality here. Jeremy Corbyn's personality did it for Labour. Boris Johnson's personality won it for the Tories. And it was also Joe Swinson's personality that did it for the Lib Dems.
5: Yes, um, Joe Swinson's personality was a problem. It's a difficult thing, I, I find, as a male journalist, to argue, because I, I think she's actually a very, very capable performer. But I have spoken to quite a number of pollsters who said that if you went into focus groups, people found her shrill and they they didn't enjoy her presence on TV. I mean, that is something which I heard multiple times and I reported it in the paper. That's not to be critical of her. I think one of the problems, unfortunately for her, was that she got the leadership uh, very soon before the election actually happened. And I think it's very difficult in British politics anyway to present yourself as an absolutely brand new leader. Even Clegg had been around a little while before the 2010 leadership. But of course, when you then said, not only am I a new leader of this party, but I'm also a candidate prime minister, the whole thing just collapsed. And the problem, of course, is if you're presenting yourself as she did as a candidate prime minister, you have got to see a significant improvement in your poll ratings for that to be taken remotely credibly. So, of course, once the whole thing got stuck, she was completely torn apart. It's very unfortunate. In the end, standing back, you do have to wonder whether if Labour and the Lib Dems are to have any chance of being anywhere near power in the next decade, whether in the next phase they need to talk about some kind of collaboration. I mean, I know this is blue sky thinking in very early days, but I personally don't see in its current state, even with a centrist leader, I don't see Labour coming into power for at least 10 years. And the Lib Dems have been so badly affected now in two elections that one does wonder whether a deeper reconfiguration of the centre-left is needed. Finally,
0: Jim, the other party that did well in this election was the Scottish National Party that we knew they were going to make big gains and they picked up a decent number of seats and are once again a commanding force in Scotland. Scottish Labour has been absolutely destroyed. If you think about how mighty that party was back just even five years ago and now it has one seat. The Scottish Tories lost seven of their seats and in some ways they're pleased they didn't lose more, but it's still a pretty bad performance for them. And when you look at that, it's all pointing towards a second independence referendum in the near future Although we should
4: say Boris Johnson has said he will simply not give that the go ahead. Yeah, he can keep saying that, but it just feels like this sort of organic pressure, which is going to be very hard to resist in the the long or the medium term. And yes, Labour, you know, it's really easy to forget that as recently as 2015, they had 41 seats there, reduced to almost nothing in that election. They'd clawed it back to, I think, seven in 2017, which at least was the kind of enough people to sit around the table and uh, have a meal or something. And then back down to one, I mean, it is the mighty fallen. And when you take that out of the equation of how Labour gets to a majority and they need need To gain something like 130 seats at the next election. No one thinks they're going to come from Scotland. Where on earth are they going to come from under whoever the leader is, whether they're soft left, Blair right, hard left? Goodness knows.
6: I mean, The real problem that we're going to see later down the line is that Boris Johnson's Brexit deal will undermine the union because it will treat Northern Ireland differently. And that is just going to fuel Scottish demands for independence. And he is going to be really put on the spot when Northern Ireland is being treated differently. And we potentially see a reunification poll on the island of Ireland. And he has to stand up in the House of Commons and tell the SNP, no, I am a prime minister. I will protect the union when he hasn't. And I think that we haven't really talked about this enough over the election, but this deal is going to have dramatic ramifications for the Union and for Northern Ireland and for Scotland.
0: I'm going to add a slightly different view to that, just to a bit of other side of things, is that I think once we've left the EU, the case for Scottish independence becomes much more difficult because they will have to say, if you want to leave, A, you'll have a hard border with England, there will also be no sterling, you will have to join the Euro and there will be more difficult questions about Scotland's economic viability particularly given where North Sea oil is and that we've now seen record figures under the Barnett formula given to Scotland, and I'm sure we'll get into all this in the many years to come in this debate. But in the immediate future, Jim, there is this question just how the politics of this work, because Nicola Sturgeon has popped up and said, we now have a mandate, let's crack on with this. Boris Johnson is going to say no. So really, I think the next thing to look forward to is the 2021 Holyrood elections, where the SNP will be seeking their mandate for another second independence referendum. And by that point, maybe we've left the EU, but Boris Johnson will be under huge pressure at that point to allow them to have a second referendum.
4: I was only going to jump on your point about the uh, Scottish public thinking rationally about the decline of North Sea oil and the economic argument for independence. And I would just gently point out that the English public wasn't thinking in terms of economic forecasts and their own economic uh, well-being when they backed Brexit so famously a couple of years ago. So I I don't know about that. We'll see. And James, Fanny, can we just look at the state of the union here, generally, because we've just
0: talked about with all these different elements here. Is there any way, do you think Boris Johnson can manage this? Because the forces in Scotland are going to be very powerful. As Laura just said, in Northern Ireland, there are going to be very powerful forces as well there. And it feels like the big conclusion of today's election is that England has voted very clearly for the Conservatives and for Brexit, and Scotland has voted very clearly for Remain and for the SNP.
5: Well, it all depends on what Boris Johnson wants to do in in the next few years. I mean, I think you would have discussed this uh, in in the earlier part of the programme with Robert and George and Miranda, but in the end, Boris Johnson does have a quite a sizeable majority by historic standards, at least going right back to 1987. The ERG probably will be a much less of a force, and that does give him the opportunity to take a different view of the deal that he has signed with the EU and of the political declaration that's in it and the direction things are going in. If he decides in the end that he will go down the road of a a softer break from the EU, something a little bit closer to, not necessarily EEA, but certainly something which leaves quite a high degree of alignment. And remember, he's got a lot of northern Conservative MPs now who are in areas uh, where there's an important manufacturing industry who might actually start pressing for that. If he goes down that road, that might take some of the pressure off the Scottish question. I suppose that's the thing that one has to look at. Really depends on how he's going to frame it. I mean, Theresa May started off her premiership in 2017 by going to visit Nicola Sturgeon and saying she wanted to have a wider discussion within the four countries of the UK over the future, and she really didn't do very much about it at all. I think if Johnson really works hard at trying to work with Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales, he may get somewhere. He certainly has the political space and the political capital to do it, but if he takes a hard line and leaves things as they are, then we really are heading for some very difficult waters in the area around 2021, 2022.
0: And that's it for your Bumper Podcast episode. Thank you so much to George, Miranda, Robert, James, Jim and Law for joining. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard and would like to see more of our election coverage, then you can pick up a copy of the FT Weekend or look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Election Countdown, which will be reverting back to FT Politics next week, was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening.